Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 2, Episode 7, The Gold Violin. We began our discussion of season two with For Those Who Think Young, an episode that introduced Don's dissatisfaction, both in professional success and personal stability. For Those Who Think Young ended with the poetic introspection of a character struggling to feel young again, and in the episodes that followed, Don slowly acquiesced to his looter impulses, thrusting his personal life further into chaos. Last time, I concluded with a discussion of Don's internal question, who am I, really? In that episode, I mentioned that Don's inner conflict would drive a more explicit character conflict. Our seventh episode, The Gold Violin, begins the inevitable collapse of Don's family life, brought on by his own self-destructive tendencies. But The Gold Violin doesn't fixate on this conflict. It's a nuanced episode that builds tension throughout, portraying a varied group of characters in several subplots, an advertising opportunity with Martinson Coffee, Ken's newest short story, and Burt Cooper's abstract expressionist painting. These stories coalesce around the show's supporting characters, Ken Cosgrove, Sal Romano, and Jane Siegel. One of Mad Men's strengths, and perhaps the reason for its lasting popularity, is its ability to make these minor characters compelling. And The Gold Violin is the best example to date. It's an episode that draws you in with lighthearted scenes, turns that trust into a more ominous thematic statement about materialism, and then punches you in the gut with a narrative cliffhanger. The Gold Violin is often rated as one of season two's best episodes, likely due to its lighter tones, eventful plot, and the strength of its acting. It was written by Matthew Weiner, Andre and Marie Jacquemettin, and Jane Anderson. The episode brings back director Andrew Bernstein and features many of season two's newcomers, Patrick Fischler, Melinda McGraw, Peyton List, and Mark Moses, among others. The Gold Violin would win a 2009 Emmy for outstanding hairstyling in a single-camera series. It's an episode about self-worth, unfolding against the backdrop of symbols and status, and how we use the former in pursuit of the latter. The episode begins in the clean, elegant showroom of a Cadillac dealership. The set was constructed by Mad Men's production design crew in the lobby of Los Angeles Center Studios. Everything within, from the cars, to the framed photographs, to the English car salesman selling American cars, suggests a level of sophistication. Salesman Wayne Kirkby moves about, played by actor Adam Godley, recognizable for roles in Breaking Bad and the Umbrella Academy. He finds Don looking in the window of a brand new 1962 Series 62, Newport Blue with a white top. Afraid you'll fall in love? Something like that. Well, I can see you have good taste. This is the one. 1962 Coupe de Ville. Does everything but make breakfast. What are you in now? I had a Dodge. Those are wonderful if you want to get somewhere. This is for when you've already arrived. Wayne continues to sell Don on the promise of luxury, suggesting the car matches his persona of wealth and power. Don seems reluctant, but eventually mentions Roger Sterling, prompting Wayne to fetch a set of keys. As Don stands alone, he notices a man inspecting another Series 62 on the showroom floor. We dissolve into one of Don's memories, set in 1952, where he looks out the window as a woman, middle-aged and blonde, limps past. She enters as Don, working as a used car salesman, negotiates a sale with a father and son. 
She waits in the background, and Don approaches. Can I help you, ma'am? Are you Donald Draper? Yes, I am. If it's about my circular, many of the models are gone, but uh, I'm sure we can find you something. Oh, I'm not here to buy a car. You're a hard man to find. Excuse me? You're not Don Draper. Wayne's repeated calls snapped Don back to the present. This technique, when audio from the next scene overlaps with the video from the current shot, is called a J-cut. It's a prominent mechanism to bring the action in flashbacks or intercuts back to the master scene. And when Don regathers himself, he's so unsettled that he leaves the dealership shaking his head. Madman has slowly exposed pieces of Don's past throughout its first 20 episodes. We saw hints of this from the beginning, with allusions to Don's military service. Adam's inclusion in season 1 helped bring out stories from Don's childhood, and Nixon vs. Kennedy flash back to the moment that established our Don Draper. But to now, Madman has left the development of Don, from war veteran to advertising executive, largely unexplained. This flashback of Don, younger, happier, and more open, hints at a larger mystery, and the accusation, you're not Don Draper, seems symbolically connected to Don's reluctance to buy a car. He still doesn't accept himself, and despite his success, Don doesn't feel he deserves to step into this life of luxury. The Cadillac is the first of many symbols shown throughout the episode. The gold violin makes repeated connections between the things we own and how we portray ourselves to other people, and in this scene, the Cadillac represents wealth, power, and luxury, a life Don can outwardly inhabit, but not one he feels he deserves. This is reinforced in the following scene. Roger chats with Jane, using the pretext of a meeting with Don to flirt with her. Don finally arrives, and Roger steps into his office to talk about Wayne, Jane, and the Cadillac. I bet she suffers in silence out there, hoping you'll notice her. I don't think she cries at night from lack of attention. Wait till she finds out about your Cadillac. She'll be waiting naked right in front of this window. Roger urges Don to buy the Cadillac, making several spirited arguments, perhaps the best among them, that Don won't live forever. There's a compelling push and pull here, as Roger stands, selling Don on a life of wealth, while he sits, not eager, but willing to listen. Throughout their conversation, we're reminded of the differences between these men. Roger, born into wealth, never having to worry about money, always so confident that he deserves his place in the world, while Don, raised in squalor, struggles to define himself and accept his own success. Duck enters and introduces this episode's advertising plot. Martin Sun's Coffee is rebranding to Martinson Coffee. Founded in New York in 1898 by coffee vendor Joe Martinson, the brand may have locally been referred to as Joe's Coffee, or a cup of Joe. Widespread use of the phrase cup of Joe didn't catch on until the 1930s, but Martinson's rebranding to Martinson was a real thing, and Duck mentions that Gray Advertising is handling their business. Madman has already alluded to Gray, a prominent ad agency founded in Manhattan in 1917 by Jewish adman Lawrence Valenstein and Arthur Fatt. Gray Advertising was named for the gray-colored walls of its office building, quickly establishing the agency as a forerunner in advertising creativity. Duck sees the Martinson rebranding as an opportunity. Martinson wants to think young, and Don suggests throwing the work to the kids he hired way back in For Those Who Think Young. Hilarity ensues. Smitty and Kurt arrive to espouse their generation's beliefs, few of which they seem to observe. Kurt speaks in mostly incoherent jargon, somehow convinced that anyone can understand him. Smitty reads a copy of the Port Huron Statement, 
forwarded by someone who quite obviously detested him. Written by Jeffrey Lebowski, the Port Huron Statement was the political manifesto of Students for a Democratic Society. STS arose from the League for Industrial Democracy, which grew out of the Intercollegiate Socialist Society. ISS was founded way back in 1905 by Upton Sinclair, Jack London, and Clarence Darrow, among others. SDS began meeting in 1960 at the University of Michigan. The group quickly allied with labor unions like the United Auto Workers. At a UAW-sponsored retreat in June 1962, SDS held its first national convention and finalized the Port Huron Statement, an essay criticizing American society and government on topics ranging from racial inequality to economics to Cold War foreign policy. The Port Huron Statement also took aim at the pillars of American culture, namely the aggressive consumerism that had dominated society after World War II. And though it was ratified by late members of the silent generation, the Port Huron Statement would inspire the beatnik and counterculture movements that defined the late 60s. These are the people that would protest Vietnam. They're the people who would show up at the fateful 1968 Democratic National Convention, and their statement reads, Loneliness, estrangement, isolation, describe the vast distance between man and man today. These dominant tendencies cannot be overcome by better personnel management, nor by improved gadgets, but only when a love of man overcomes the idolatrous worship of things by man. We would replace power rooted in possession, privilege, or circumstance by power and uniqueness rooted in love, reflectiveness, reason, and creativity. But Don isn't impressed by Smitty's political gesturing. Where's the advertising, he asks. Smitty and Kurt say they found something that will appeal to young people, something less narrative than Don's work, a feeling. Kurt moves to the tape player and presses a button as we cut to the next scene. Paul, Sal, Peggy, and Ken gather in the conference room to discuss another account, Pampers. After beginning research on disposable diapers in 1956, Procter & Gamble launched the Pampers brand in the late 50s. Pampers disposable diapers would, of course, become a generation-defining symbol. The disposable diaper market exploded as more women sought new freedoms to travel, work, and pursue higher education. They had less time and less patience for washing cloth diapers, and who could blame them? But disposable diapers also symbolized another mid-century American attitude, one we'll discuss shortly, negligence toward pollution and the environment. Jane enters the conference room with feedback from Don. Harry follows and brags about his upcoming meeting with Burke Cooper, but his self-satisfaction turns to anxiety when Paul mentions Cooper's new painting. He's going to ask what you think, Paul says. Harry, who shows little artistic sentiment, is terrified at the idea. But Jane, not lacking in youthful rebelliousness, suggests they sneak into Cooper's office and take a look. Her confidence immediately intrigues Ken and Sal. The guys follow her, stopping outside Cooper's office to remove their shoes. Because you have to follow the rules when you're not following the rules, right? Just don't touch anything. It's a Rothko. Why the hell didn't Dale say that? $10,000. So it's smudgy squares, huh? That's interesting. A large painting hangs inside Cooper's office, a recreation of Red's by American artist Mark Rothko. Rothko was most often characterized as an abstract expressionist, his color block paintings featuring large regions of flat color on the canvas. We discussed abstract expressionism a bit back in For Those Who Think Young, when I mentioned Frank O'Hara's connection with other abstract expressionists like Jackson Pollock, but Rothko's style was very different from Pollock's. It developed first from literary influences, among them Greek tragedy 
and Friedrich Nietzsche. By the time Rothko's style matured, he painted almost exclusively on large, vertical canvases. He justified this by saying the large canvas was something greater than himself, something he had to step into, rather than something he could physically control. Demand for Rothko's work increased throughout the 1950s. By the early 60s, his popularity had exploded in the United States. Rothko sold to famous collectors like the Rockefellers. He became a minor celebrity and even sat next to Joe Kennedy during the 1961 presidential inauguration. Of his work, he would later explain, You've got sadness in you. I've got sadness in me. And my works of art are places where the two sadnesses can meet, and therefore both of us need to feel less sad. Jane blithely reduces this to smudgy squares. She stares at the painting for a moment, then moves away. Harry tries to figure out the best way to impress Cooper. Sal studies the canvas, searching for meaning. Maybe it's not something that can be explained. Maybe you're just supposed to experience it, Ken suggests. As they leave for the day, the painting looms. We cut to a shot of the opening elevator doors. Sal, Ken, and Jane enter, laughing about the experience. We could have stolen it, Jane says. Ken suggests he'll write a story about the afternoon, the day we looked at the painting. I'm a writer, he tells Jane, struggling to impress her. But Ken's interest in Jane is less potent than his ego, and he spends the remainder of the ride chatting with Sal, who gushes about Ken's previous short story. You may remember this, of course, from 5G, and you may also recall that Sal was largely absent from that episode. As they pour out of the elevator, Ken asks Jane to dinner. She quickly rejects him and walks away. Ken and Sal follow. The elevator doors close, and we match dissolve into a shot of the building facade. Paul stands at the lunch cart the following afternoon, gossiping with Ken. When he asks about the painting, Joan arrives from off screen. What about Mr. Cooper's painting? She asks. Joan accuses Paul, Jane, and Ken of breaking into Mr. Cooper's office. Paul tells her to mind her own business, but hints of their conflict come through, and Joan holds all the power in this interaction. Smitty convinces Sal they won't need any art for the Martinson coffee pitch. Kurt agrees, with the incomprehensible, Don has his signature. Sal's left shaking his head, but Ken arrives and asks if Sal will read his newest story. You're not like other people in the office, Ken says. Note the bond that Madman begins to establish between these two men. Beneath the awkwardness is a genuine companionship. Why does Ken trust Sal? Perhaps because he's the only guy who doesn't feel jealous or threatened by Ken's writing. Sal actually cares, endearing him to Ken who trusts him with something very personal. He invites Ken for dinner at his home that Sunday. Duck, Don, and the creative team host Jim Van Dyke from Martinson Coffee that afternoon. Don summarizes the brand's problem. Young people don't drink coffee, and, more than ever, they're turning to soda. You may remember we discussed this trend when we analyzed for those who think young. What can you do? Don asks. He laughs at the idea of puppets referencing a campaign created in 1957 by Jim Henson for Wilkins Coffee. Henson's campaigns featured an early version of the Muppets that would eventually find a wider audience. Instead, the kids that Don hired in that episode are ready to make their creative contribution. When one is an Indian country, one needs an Indian, Don says. The pitch scene is a study of generational contrast. Smitty stands up, imbued with the uninhibited assuredness of youth, his suit just a bit too big, wearing a scarf instead of a tie. The older, more conservative Van Dyke listens doubtfully. There's another push-pull here, of authority and influence. Young people, Smitty says, want to feel something. He plays a Calypso-inspired song with a casual, swaying beat and lyrics that evoke an island paradise. Van Dyke remains doubtful. I don't understand. It's a jingle, right? He asks. It's a song, and it's a mood, 
and it's a feeling, Smitty replies. It stays with you, Peggy adds. Harry, meanwhile, finally gets his chance to meet with Burke Cooper. Cooper reviews Harry's media budget. When he notices Harry distracted by the painting, they launch into a hilarious exchange. It's very modern. Mark Rothko. I've read about him. And? What do you think about it? Nobody has ever asked me that. Probably because it's none of their business. Right. Madman paid for the rights to reproduce and show this painting. Weiner claims he was fascinated by the idea of an executive who used a piece of art as a way to gauge people. Burke Cooper had, to this point, played a very minor role in season two. But the story of the painting forms a nice link between Burt's manipulative power and Harry's need to impress other people. How does it strike you? Sir, I know nothing about art. Mr. Crane, you're here because of numbers. Stick to that. Don't concern yourself with aesthetics. You'll get a headache. Of course. Bert then expresses an idea so central to Mad Men, so central to the gold violin, a perfect summation of materialism and self-image. People buy things to realize their aspirations. It's the foundation of our business. But between you and me and the lamppost, that thing should double in value by next Christmas. <laughs> this statement is important. It's the crux upon which madmen rests, that we want things, that we buy things to become the version of ourselves we want to be. It's the concept that drives advertising, it's what motivates Don's self-interest, and throughout the gold violin, it's what compels the plot forward. Betty and Sally sit in the kitchen that afternoon when the phone rings. ABC picked up Grin and Barrett, Jimmy says through the line. Betty is flattered by his attention. He invites her to a party at the Stork Club. Betty says she'll try to convince Don. Duck enters Don's office to break some good news. Martins and Coffee love the pitch. Don pours a celebratory drink and offers a glass to Duck, who abstains. But before they can toast their success, Jane enters and tells Don to report to Burke Cooper's office, alone. Don leaves and pats Duck on the shoulder. Duck lingers, dejected. He's done all the work of a good account man. He's spent time with the client, gotten to know him personally, and formed an intimate understanding of the business problem. But despite his excellent work, Duck's not credited with any of the spoils of success. Even when Duck does his job, there's just no room for him to break through at Sterling Cooper. Roger and Bert break more good news as Don enters. Jim Van Dyke was impressed with his work. He's inviting Don to join the board of the Museum of Early American Folk Arts. First established in June 1961 by Joe Martinson and Adele Ernest, the museum strived to foster appreciation for American folk art. They had no permanent collection, no endowment, and no building. The museum held its first exhibition that year in a rented space on West 53rd Street. In 1962, after the donation of the Flag Gate, the museum launched its permanent collection. The collection would grow steadily over the years, eventually moving to its current home at 2 Lincoln Square and changing its name to the American Folk Art Museum. The museum holds over 8,000 objects and receives over 130,000 visitors annually. If you're ever in New York City, you should check it out. Admission is free. Don seems confused about being appointed to the board of a folk art exhibit that doesn't yet exist. Bert helps him understand suggesting the appointment is a way for Don to mingle with society's power players. 
Do you understand what this means? You're going to be wearing your tuxedo a lot more. It's time for the horse to catch the carrot. Bert dismisses Roger for a moment. He reminds Don that he knows about his past, then tells Don to embrace the opportunity in front of him. There are few people who get to decide what will happen in our world. You have been invited to join them. Pull back the curtain and take your seat. We cut quickly to a shot of Don at the Cadillac dealership. He sits in the driver's seat as Wayne comes around. You're back. I had a feeling. You want to take it for a drive? Wayne, I would like to buy this car. Don slides so perfectly into that Series 62, a car that neatly symbolizes everything he wants to project. Wealth, luxury, power. Remember that the gold violin is about how we realize ourselves through objects. And in buying the Cadillac, we witness a significant shift in Don's character. The guilt that stopped him at the outset of this episode has been replaced with an assuredness that will drive him forward. Contrast the final image of Don in maiden form, doubtful and ashamed, with what's shown here. This is the difference Mad Men captures, between who we really are and who we strive to be, between how our possessions represent ourselves and what we see in the mirror. It's the essence of that question, what is the American dream, really? Don shows Betty the Cadillac that afternoon. She's gleeful, happy for Don to get something he wanted. Don confesses that the car was expensive, which only excites Betty more. You work so hard, she says. You deserve it. She moves toward him, ready to make love. Not in the new car, Don insists. She brings up Jimmy's party, and Don wonders why Jimmy didn't go through his secretary. We move back to the office, where Jane sits typing at her desk, centered in a shot through Don's open office door. Joan approaches and accuses her of breaking into Mr. Cooper's office. Jane at first denies this, then says the boys made her do it. There's a bit of a gag when Joan says, They'll do anything you say. You work for Mr. Draper. Right, Joan. That's the reason. We saw Jane's youthful impetuousness on full display in both The New Girl, when Joan scolded her about her décolletage, and maiden form, when a weekend at the beach left her as red as a tomato. And in The Gold Violin, she becomes the first secretary to challenge Joan's authority. What's wrong with you? With me? Yes. Are you the only one who's allowed to have fun around here? What? Please. I don't need a mother. I'm 20 years old. Collect your things. What? Get your things. You can't be serious. You want to have this conversation again in front of Mr. Draper? I'm going to the break room to find your replacement. See that you are gone by the time I return. Jane sits stunned as Joan walks away. She later walks over to Roger's office, carrying a box of personal belongings and, among other things, a Kodak carousel ad. She thanks Roger for being so kind to her. Roger finally figures out where she lives and suggests Jane come back next week. Miss Holloway is, uh, well, she's going through a rough time. She's engaged, you know. Tell you what, you go home. Where do you live? In the village, Jane Street. Jane on Jane Street. It's a pretty picture. Listen, you go home to your little apartment on Jane Street. By the time you come back here on Monday morning, 
This will all be taken care of. I've discussed in previous episodes how Joan uses her sexuality to disarm other men, and this is one part of how Joan more generally holds power over others. She's one of the few women in Mad Men who doesn't shrink from confrontation. But when she's challenged by Jane, the agency's newest young secretary, it's not something she can be seen to tolerate. Jane, meanwhile, understands that to keep her job, she needs to go over Joan's head. Jane has had her sights set on the office's higher executive since her arrival in The New Girl. She's continually beaten back the advances of younger executives, all while entertaining Roger's flirtation. Remember, Jane is embodying a younger generation with more modern ideas about female sexuality. This is the basis of Jane and Roger's relationship, that she's trading her sexuality for his wealth and influence. Remember the speculation about Peggy, that perhaps she was sleeping with Don to advance her career? Jane is everything the office expected Peggy to be, and her willingness to manipulate Roger drives a wedge between her and Joan. Now some of you may say, didn't Joan do the exact same thing back in season 1? Remember that Joan's relationship with Roger was never rooted in manipulation. She genuinely loved him. She expresses this sentiment throughout season 1, notably after Roger's heart attack in Long Weekend. And given the chance to marry into Roger's wealth, Joan declined, knowing Roger could never reciprocate her love. Joan may have more modern ideas about sexuality and power, but she still clings to more traditional notions of love. And because of her deep affection for Roger, Joan will never forgive Jane's manipulation. Don's new Cadillac sits parked on the roadside that Sunday. Don, Betty, and the kids lay on a picnic blanket, enjoying the warmth of a summer afternoon and playing a game of checkers. You may notice Sally's odd interpretation of the rules. Don recounts a story from his childhood on the farm, which prompts Sally to ask, Are we rich? Don gets up to leave and hurls a can of beer into the distance. Betty checks the kids, then fans out the picnic blanket, leaving trash scattered on the roadside. They hop in the new car and drive away. Now a lot of people get upset at this scene, and I think that's fair. Littering is bad. Don't leave your garbage on a quaint, grassy hill. But our modern attitudes toward littering are much different from what prevailed in the early 60s. At that time, people tossed their trash out the car window, on the roadside, wherever it was convenient. Duck hinted at this earlier in our episode, mentioning that he saw a refrigerator floating in a pond. This was the early 60s. Consumerism was ramping up to epic proportions, and the idea of environmental preservation was still years from mainstream consciousness. In 1962, Rachel Carson published Silent Spring, a warning about pesticides and humanity's broader negative impact on the natural world. But environmental negligence would build to a peak of concern in the early 70s, and on Earth Day 1971, the nonprofit organization Keep America Beautiful would launch the Crying Indian Campaign, a minute-long PSA featuring a Native American encountering the ruined beauty of the American landscape. The spot was later called one of the 50 greatest commercials of all time by the Ad Council. The government's role in preventing litter is even more recent. The Environmental Protection Agency began operations in December 1970. At that time, states had littering penalties ranging from a slap on the wrist to a small fine. These minor penalties persisted through the 70s and into the 80s, when states began increasing punishment, finally taking the litter problem seriously. But this was years after Mad Men and the 60s, a decade defined by ad-driven consumerism, by excess, by piles of trash scattered on the roadside. Ken arrives at Sal's apartment that afternoon, where Sal introduces his wife Kitty. She's played by actress Sarah Drew, who you'll undoubtedly recognize from a long-running role in Grey's Anatomy. Mad Men briefly introduced Kitty in For Those Who Think Young, then brought her back for a short scene at Paul's party in Flight One, 
but this is her most impactful performance yet. She plays the part of a perfect hostess, wearing a white dress with green trim and a red rose. Sal wears a matching green suit with a red tie. He moves about the kitchen and invites Ken to try his pasta sauce. It feels like a kitschy throwback to something you'd see in The Sopranos. Ken struggles to contain his excitement and asks what Sal thought of the story. Are you kidding? I loved it, Sal replies. They continue chatting over dinner, Kitty playing the third wheel and trying to interject herself. Sal brushes her away and launches into gossip about Harry's meeting with Burt Cooper. Ken explains the title of his story, The Gold Violin. You know, I saw one at the Met. It's perfect in every way, except it can't make music. That's it. That's the episode title. The Gold Violin is, of course, a representation of possessions in general, seemingly perfect and, at least according to Burt Cooper, a way for us to realize our aspirations. Think about consumerism, about advertising and salesmanship and the appeal of this year's gadget or appliance or car. All this buying and selling isn't really about the item's function. Just like our salesman said, Don's Dodge is perfect if you want to go somewhere. No, the appeal of that new car isn't in its ability to get us from one place to another, but in how it makes us feel, how it makes other people see us. That gold violin can't make music, but it's beautiful and perfect. It's not an answer for what we need. It's what we want. There's a subtext of attraction between Ken and Sal throughout this scene, but it's not the kind of attraction you think. Both Matthew Weiner and Brian Batt have said that Sal doesn't yet embrace his homosexuality. This relationship isn't driven by sexual attraction. It's friendship. There are a few moments of this at Sterling Cooper, a fast-paced setting where pretentiousness often gets in the way of these deeper personal connections. But in the gold violin, we sense that both Ken and Sal appreciate each other's authenticity. There's no one-upmanship in this interaction. It's just two guys who genuinely enjoy one another. Ken smiles as he gets up to leave. You can let your wife read it, he tells Sal, who walks him to the door. When Sal returns, he's confronted by Kitty, who's upset over being ignored. Sal tries to console her. He seems to genuinely care about her and wants to be a good husband. But we know Sal can't really love Kitty fully, and there's a subtle implication throughout these scenes that she senses this too. She leaves Sal alone in the dining room. He finds Ken's lighter on the table, looks over it for a moment, and stows it in his pocket. Ken walks into the office the following morning, still desperate to take Jane on a date. He offers her tickets to the Mets game, but she again rejects him, this time adding, don't come by my desk, I'm being watched. He finds Sal around the office and thanks him for dinner. Later that day, Jane sits there typing. The camera pans around her, set to a jazz cue that sounds like it was lifted from the Pink Panther. The shot cuts to Joan, who slowly approaches. She admonishes Jane once more. What on God's green earth are you doing here? Joan asks. Jane advises she talk to Roger, adding that Joan frequently loses her temper and that it's not serious. Joan walks away, furious. Sal sits in his living room that evening, lit through the darkness by the glow of the TV. His mother snores on the sofa, and Kitty sews nearby. He reaches into his pocket, pulls out Ken's lighter, takes a few puffs of a cigarette, and relaxes, satisfied. Don and Betty enter the store club together, Don wearing a white tuxedo with a black bow tie, and Betty dressed in an elegant blue gown with blue earrings. They're quickly approached by Bobby Barrett, who wears a red dress. Note the contrast in the women here. Madman is making a fairly obvious point about temptation and goodness, reminiscent of the angel and the devil on your shoulder, frequently depicted in cartoons. Bobby introduces Andrew Colville, an executive from ABC, and wants to talk about product placement. Don, uncomfortable with the situation, starts for the bar, but Betty volunteers instead, leaving Don and Bobby to discuss business. 
Betty wanders the party alone that evening, ignored by Don. Jimmy finds her and flatters her with compliments. They sit together, and Jimmy says he feels small. Look at us, over here, at the kids' table, he says. He watches Don and Bobby and asks Betty, what do you think happened between the two of them? Betty gets up, offended, and leaves. You people are ugly and crude, she accuses. Jimmy finds Don at the coat check, waiting for Betty. He finally lays his accusations against Don. You know what I like about you? Nothing. But it's okay. You got me everything I wanted. What did you get? Bobby? Lots of people have had that. Excuse me? Please. I laugh at you. I go home at night, and I laugh at you. I don't know what you think happened. You. You want to step out? Fine. Go to a whore. You don't screw another man's wife. You're garbage. And you know it. Note the subtle movement of the camera as Jimmy's last line hits, pulling in on Don with a slight wobble. Combined with John Hamm's facial expressions, this really emphasizes the weight of Jimmy's words. Don feels exposed here. This moment shakes him because what Jimmy expresses is how Don actually sees himself. And with this final scene, Madman perhaps suggests that no amount of success or wealth or possession can conceal how we feel about ourselves, that what we see inside will reveal itself. Don is stunned by this feeling, only snapped out of it when Betty approaches. Jimmy adopts a friendly demeanor and wishes them a good night. Don and Betty drive home silently in the car. The tension is palpable as we cut through individual portraits to a two-shot of the front seat. There are no words, only physical disgust. Betty suddenly vomits. The episode cuts to credits. The song Break It To Me Gently by Brenda Lee accompanies the credit sequence. If I had to choose a word that sums up the gold violin, it would be conflict. Where Maiden Form most often showed moments of introspection, the gold violin is about the tension between characters. The writing stars here, slowly building that tension throughout the episode. The opening scene immediately introduces some of this, as Don hesitates to buy the Cadillac, struggling to accept his place in the world. Jane's brash insubordination sets her at odds with Joan. Harry struggles to impress Bert with his artistic sensibility. And, of course, Betty finally and viscerally reacts to Don's infidelity. This episode is notable for its use of symbolism. Bert's Rothko painting, Ken's gold violin, and Don's Cadillac each hint at the episode's theme, that we buy things to realize the person we want to become. None of these objects is desired for its intrinsic purpose. Each is instead an idealized version of the more essential thing. They're totems, a way for our characters to portray themselves, to feel like they're the person they want to be. We ended our last episode, Maiden Form, with the unsettling question, how do other people see me and how do I see myself? And in the gold violin, Mad Men seems to offer an answer, that we buy things to craft our outward image. But as Mad Men suggests, it's not the correct answer, because perhaps more than any episode to date, the gold violin alludes to the consequences of that unbridled consumerism that would define a generation. There are, of course, various examples of this throughout the episode. Bert's more cynical appreciation of Rothko's painting, the Port Huron statement, even the draper's garbage left scattered on a hillside. Don's new Cadillac is perhaps the most prominent portrayal of the gold violin's deconstruction of the American dream, a symbol of wealth and of mid-century America, one Don finally grasps only to realize that it won't stop others from glimpsing the ugliness inside. Through each of these moments, Madman hints that the answer to our problems isn't rooted in wealth. It's not possessions that bring us happiness or help us become ourselves. 
but the gold violin doesn't share the weighty tones of our previous episode. Unlike Maiden Form, this episode doesn't linger on its thematic statement. It instead sweeps us through a series of conflicts that are quickly established and resolved, for better or worse. The end result is something lighter, almost hijinksy. It's an episode that bounces from scene to scene, character to character, and ends with the sudden realization of a story Madman has built throughout season two. There's a perhaps unconscious meaning to unpack here, something quintessential to Mad Men. Kindness. Throughout the episode, I was struck by the deeper thematic conflict between the character's self-interest and those more satisfying moments of decency. Don't get me wrong, most of the gold violin is about the consequences of upward-reaching greed, but Ken and Sal's unfolding friendship and even Joan's subtle feelings about Roger cut through those moments to show the beauty of genuine concern for others. While watching this episode, I was struck by the type of camaraderie that develops when two characters can interact without pretense or ego. Still, the Gold Violin launches many conflicts that will define Season 2, and I'd be remiss not to summarize them. Roger's interest in Jane has been budding since she was introduced in The New Girl. Remember that Roger, like Don, is dealing with his own fears about growing old and complacent. Throughout Season 2, Roger seems repressed, longing for cigarettes and romantic affairs as a way to feel young and refreshed. Charming Jane, then, is Roger's newest desperate attempt to rekindle his youthful energy. Jane, meanwhile, comes across as cynical, but perhaps naive. We should keep in mind that Jane is following the exact advice Joan gave Peggy way back in episode 1. Amidst her conflict with Joan, it's easy to dislike Jane and find her actions desperate, even manipulative. But Mad Men repeatedly implies that this is how women acted in this office. Jane's behavior isn't extraordinary. The question that follows, then, is why does Joan hate her so much? And I know many people may jump to jealousy as an answer. But to me, this seems too simple. I don't think Joan is jealous of Jane. I don't even think her anger is driven much by Jane's insubordination. Rather, I think her reaction is about her feelings for Roger. Mad Men has repeatedly shown how much she cares for him, and as Jane and Roger's relationship continues to grow, so will Joan's resentment. There's also that essential conflict between Don and Betty. This has loomed over our story since around episode 1, and in The Gold Violin, the veil of Don's secrecy is torn away for Betty to see him plainly. But like the gold violin, I will end my commentary on a bit of a cliffhanger, and we'll discuss Don and Betty's relationship more in our next episode, A Night to Remember. everyone just wanted to encourage you to subscribe to the podcast so you get the newest episodes as soon as they're dropped i have an instagram account where you can follow me at madman deconstructed you can also email me at madman deconstructed podcast at gmail.com thank you as always for listening and i'll see you next episode